Oh, Craig. Yeah, what is it, Wilma? This ball he gave me is no good. It's full of holes. Full of holes? Those holes are supposed to be in it. You put your fingers in them, you numbskull. Fred Flintstone. Oh, you dropped that ball on my foot, you dimwit. Fred, I won't have you calling me names. I went out with you to be a companion to you. But I won't stand for that stuff. Oh, uh, I didn't mean anything, Wilma. It's just that when a guy's out with his buddy, he might call him names and fun. That's the buddy system. Yeah. <laughs> Some of the names I used to call Barney. <laughs> oh, boy. But Barney never got mad. Okay. I get the idea. You were going to teach me to bowl. Okay, Fat stuff? Fat stuff? Don't get mad, buddy. <laughs> I, I see that, and I think we haven't progressed very far from the days of Fred and Wilma. <laughs> Marie and I have been married for 41 years, and I can tell you this. We've come a long, long ways. And she still has a little ways to go. I have a long ways to go. And if you're married and your spouse is with you, and you have it all complete, stand with us, and uh, we will witness your demise. <laughs> I am going to talk about Adam and Eve, but I want to set some context around it, around this series that we're in. The premise is that every great book begins with important pages that set the stage for all that follows. And if you get the opening pages, you have more insight about what's ahead. If you miss the opening pages and the significance written there, you don't get the full power of what follows. And so because we believe the Bible is the greatest book, the perfect book by the greatest author, by the perfect author, we believe God's done that with Scripture as well in Genesis chapters 1 through 3. So we launched last week by talking about these, these four great themes that are in those three chapters, the first of them being the theme of creation. and talked about how God has created everything. Everything in existence owes their existence to Him. So everything is known by Him. Everything is owned by Him. And then we said that, that his design for his creation is good, which means his design for you is good. And then finally we said that, that all that God says comes to pass. And we linked that and said if we would remember those things, those truths about creation, every time we open Scripture, anywhere we read in Scripture, remember those things, it would help inform what we're reading. It would help uh, enlighten us and give us clarity about what we're reading. So the first theme was creation. The second theme is Adam and Eve that I'll talk about today. The very first two people that God ever created. The beginning of humankind. And theirs is a story. Theirs is a theme of relationship. Certainly there's some about relationship between Adam and Eve, but there's much more about relationship between them and God. And so that's where I want to begin around this theme of relationship. And I want to approach it from this way. I want to look at who they are to God in this relationship. Who they are to Him and I want to look at, at who he is to them. And that's what we could say about ourselves as well. The same thing that they are to him and vice versa as well. So I want to look first at Genesis 1, verse 26 and 27. And I want to go ahead and give you the answer. And now I'll back it up with these scriptures. To God, they are God's special creation. They are God's special creation. Verse 26 says, Then God said, Let us make human beings in our image to be like us. They will reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, the livestock, all the wild animals of the earth, and the small animals that scurry along the ground. 
So God created human beings in his own image, in the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Begins by saying, God says, let us make human beings in our image. It's, it's the very first suggestion that is actually filled out and answered through the rest of the Bible. The very first suggestion that while there's one God, he is a God of Trinity. He's a God of three persons. That's what God is speaking about. He's saying, let us, let us make people in our image. And we've already found in this chapter, we know that the Father is creating. It also says there that the Spirit is there creating. And then you wait until the New Testament days, John chapter 1, that says Jesus was there too in the beginning creating. So, so God is saying, let us, like Father, Son, and Spirit, make people in our image to be like us. And, and so there's this, uh, there's this uniqueness about it. There's nothing else in creation that God says us about to be made in his image. Not about any inanimate object, not about any animal, any plant. People are the only thing God says are made in his image. It doesn't spell out what that means, but we could readily surmise, as theologians have through the years, it means that we, like God, have the ability to discern right from wrong, good from evil. We have the ability to do that like God does. It would mean that we have moral choice like God does. We can know what right and wrong are. We can choose right or wrong. We have moral choice like God does. It means we have a soul that's eternal that lasts forever. It means because we're created in his image, we can have this unique, intimate, close relationship with God. There's this uniqueness there. There's this specialness there. I need to do a little sidestep, though, and, and touch upon the last line that I read. It says that, that male and female, he created them. Now, this is not saying that God is male or female or both. God is, is none. While he always refers to himself in the masculine, he always does that. He is neither male nor female. He has all of the, all of the good traits that we tend to think men have, all the good traits we tend to think women have. It says male and female, he created them. Now, here's the sidestep, just because of the times in which we live. He created two sexes, male and female. He created two genders, male and female. And in all of Scripture, one's sex is always in alignment with one's gender. And, and now we know, through all we've learned biologically, know that every human being in every cell of their being their chromosomes declare whether they are male or female. Every single cell of a person's body declares this person is male, this person is female. Again, sex and gender align. Now, I know, and maybe some of you in this room, but I know there are a number of people now that deeply feel that their gender is different than their sex. It's an authentic feeling. And maybe it's persisted for a long, long time and they probably have no idea where it came from. The feeling is strong, but what they need to know, and you and I need to know about our lives, is that feelings are often based upon lies. Even very strong feelings are often based upon lies. Enduring feelings are often based upon lies. And when we base our life upon a lie, there's damage to come. I was reminded of this in a profound, tragic way this week. A young woman came to me and began to tell me the story of her dad. Her dad came to a point of believing that he was absolutely worthless. 
It was a deep, it was a profound feeling. It lasted a long, long time. He had no worth and no value. And then he came to the strong feeling that his family would be better off without him. Both of those are lies. This man had infinite worth in the eyes of his creator. This man was of great value to his family, and yet he believed the lies and tragically took his life. Feelings can be based upon lies, and when we base, when we act upon those feelings as though, as though they're based upon truth, there's damage to be done. There's a price to pay. Jesus said in John 8.32, um, it, truth will set you free. Truth will set you free. Truth must always trump emotion in our lives. Truth must always trump emotion in our lives. So if you are someone who struggles with feeling you're one gender, but your sex is opposite, if you know and love someone who feels that way, this is, this is what we have to remember, that love always tenderly, with compassion, with the spiritually always speaks truth to someone. Love never affirms someone living a lie. It's what love does, and you and I must be that way. You and I must be that way as well. It's, it's a challenging time we live in. It's not a time to throw stones, because you and, I, you and I are just as prone to feel something, think it's based upon truth, and act upon it as well. So I had to take that sidestep because of the time in which we live. So, so God created them in his image, so they're his special creation. There are a couple more things that, that just shout out loud and clear through that. Down in chapter 2, verse 7, it says, Then the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground. He breathed the breath of life into the man's nostrils, and the man became a living person. He breathed the breath of life. This isn't said about anybody else, anything else created. Not of the animals, it's just, about, it's just about humanity. Breathed the breath of life. For the Hebrew word to breathe, there are two Hebrew words that are used. One of them is used indiscriminately for the, for the breath or breathing of God or people or animals or even false gods. It's used indiscriminately. It's used over 400 times in Scripture. But the other term used for breathe is only used 25 times, and it's always exclusively, exclusively used for God and man, always. Just one more place of looking here and saying, God is saying, you are my special creation. Nothing else is like you. Nothing else is like you. And then there's one more accent of this. In chapter 1, when God has been creating, at the end of the days that are unfolding, he, he finishes a day's work and says, it is good. Another day it is good. Another day is good. And then he makes humankind. And he doesn't say it's good. He says it's very good. There's this profound message that Adam and Eve are, are his special creation, that he treasures above all else. And the implication that you can take and I can take is that's true for you as well. Hey, of all of creation, the, the hundred billion galaxies we, we sang about, and that's what scientists think it is. Maybe it's even more the hundred billion galaxies, of all the beauty of creation, he treasures you above all that. In fact, he made all that for you. He made all that for you to enjoy and to, be, to prosper in and, and to be supplied by. He made all that for you. You are his prized possession. Shouldn't be any surprise. A lot of you in here have stuff. 
Marie and I have some stuff. We've got a, like a normal, modest house. I'm so thankful we have a house and have a couple of cars that run so we can get... I'm so thankful for that. A bunch of you have a place to live, have cars. Maybe you have boats and castles and all kinds of stuff. But I bet, unless you're really messed up, I bet you treasure the people in your world more. I bet there's a spouse or a son or a daughter or a brother or a sister or a mother or a father or a grandparent or even an in-law or maybe especially an in-law. In-laws out there, don't, get, don't let me get in trouble with you. That you treasure more than anything else. Should we be surprised that God would treasure more than anything people? People. Adam and Eve, they're his special creation. That's who they are to him. So who is God to them? First is this, that God is their purpose giver. God is their purpose giver. He gives them purpose. In Genesis 1, 26, it says, you know, God said, let us make human beings in our image be like us. They will reign over the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock, all the wild animals on the earth, and the small animals that scurry along the ground. And then verse 28, he picks that up again. God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and govern it. Reign over the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and all the animals that scurry along the ground. And then a third time after creating the Garden of Eden, in chapter 2, verse 15, it says the Lord placed the man in the garden to tend it and to watch over it. He's their purpose giver. He's given, he's given them work to do on the planet. Their work is, is to govern this planet that he made. Their work is to, to bend and mold and shape this planet so it's a good planet to live on. It's a place where people can prosper on this planet. It's the work he's given them. And, and it's a sacred work. And I can say that because, because God himself is a worker. You read the creation story, and chapter 1 is unfolding, and God is doing all these things and creating all these things, and you finally get to the end of it on the seventh day. Chapter 2, verse 2, it says, On the seventh day, God had finished his work of creation. So he rested from all of his work. God is a worker. And not just at creation, Jesus would say in John 5, 17, my father is always working, and so my God himself is a worker, and he's given work to Adam and Eve to do. He's given them sacred work to do. Like this concept of work being godly and sacred is unique to the Christian faith. There's no other ancient religion that believed such as that. The Babylonians, in their creation story about how it all began, the Enuma Elish, one of their great gods that they believed in, fights this great goddess. There's this great battle, there's this war, there's this conflict, there's no world, there's no earth, but out of this battle, the the god wins over the goddess, and out of the remains of the goddess, then the earth is formed. Creation's formed out of that, out of conflict and out of strife and out of warfare and bloodshed, the earth is formed. Not Not out of a craftsman working, making, molding, in shaping. The Greeks, in their ancient worldview, they spoke of the beginning of time as the golden age. In that age, they believed that humanity was living in harmony with the gods. And then they believed, and this is why they called it the golden age, they believed that the earth just provided everything, and neither humanity nor the gods had to work at all. That's why it was the golden age. And they, they viewed work as punishment, and the, the Christian faith is this unique perspective. I mean, God himself is work, and he gave Adam and Eve work to do. He gives you and me work to do. There's this assignment to shape and mold the planet. I don't know how you look at your work. When I, when I got out of college and started in the oil business, 
Can I be honest with you? I saw it as a way to make money, and I hoped one day, a lot of money, and I saw it as a way to hopefully patch up a fragile ego. Paycheck, money, I hoped a lot. It was something to make me feel like I was worse. That's, That's what I saw it as. Eight years into doing that job, I became a follower of Jesus, and I had a fresh perspective, and for a season, I saw work only as, I would go to work, I would be there, I would work hard, which God says to do, I would work hard, but I saw my purpose as trying to draw others toward Jesus, and for some long season, that was my sole purpose there, although I worked hard, and, and it's appropriate to do, and, and I've, I, to this day, I say, the workplace is the cutting edge of Christianity. I saw times, I, I went to the hospital to, to see a fellow worker who was in the hospital for some time and serious injury there and serious illness there. And, and I, when I was there, I, I prayed for this person and a nurse walked in and as I was praying, they waited and I left. And after I left, she said, oh, it's so great that your pastor's here. Like, I'm just an oil man. And when my friend said, oh no, he just works with me, it blew her mind. She thought like pastors are paid to do that, but does someone really believe prayer works with the God out of the way? And so for the season, I thought, well, that's, that's all it is. And then with time, I began to see it was, there was a much fuller picture. It is, yes, it is, this place to, to draw others to know this stunning Jesus. But I saw it as work to help mold this planet for the good of people. I was in the oil business. I saw finding, producing oil and natural gas provides energy for, for people on this planet. How do you see your work? Do you see it as, as this divine calling? Do you see it as this, this sacred chore, this sacred thing God's given you to do? That, that's what he gave Adam and Eve. That's what he gives you and I to help shape the planet. Maybe for you, maybe it's constructing homes. Maybe it's cleaning homes. Maybe it's preparing food. Maybe it's raising children. Maybe it's teaching children. Maybe it's banking. Maybe it's selling. I don't know what it is. But how do you see your work? You have a call from God. He is your purpose giver. And one of those callings is to help shape and mold this planet to be hospitable and helpful for humankind. There's a second thing, second purpose he gives Adam and Eve. Uh, it says there, uh, he says that they are to, um, to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. In other words, Adam and Eve are to have children. There's this, this clear command for them but it's very important that you hear this. As you look through Scripture to the very end, it's very clear that for many people, that is God's plan for them. But there are some people, it's not His plan. It's not this universal command. It's not this universal assignment that you have. And if you don't have kids, you failed. Clearly, the Apostle Paul maybe followed Jesus with more abandon than anyone was single his whole life. He was single his entire life. Mother Teresa, who has impacted this planet in our generation, single her whole life. John Stott, one of the most beloved pastors of our time, single his whole life. There's, there's, not, this, there's not this picture of, of every single person is to be fruitful and multiply and have children. It's important to know it. But for Adam and Eve, kind of a no-brainer, isn't it? Like if there are going to be more than two people, they need to have children. That's just the way it works. That was, their, that was part of their purpose, maybe part of yours may not be part of yours as well. So uh, to be fruitful and to multiply was part of their purpose. God is their, was their purpose giver. He is your purpose giver as well. He is your purpose giver as well. 
God is also, was also their provider. In chapter 1, verse 29, God says, Look, I've given you every seed-bearing plant throughout the earth and all the fruit trees for your food. And I've given every green plant as food for all the wild animals, the birds of the sky, the small animals that scurry along the ground, everything that has life. And then chapter 2, verse 8, he picks up again. The Lord planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he placed the man he had made. The Lord made all sorts of trees grow from the ground, trees that were beautiful and that produced delicious fruit. In the middle of the garden, he placed the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed through the land of Eden. God was providing. He was their provider for food and water and even shelter there. He was their provider. But there's another provision he gives as well. If you look further down in chapter 2, verse 18, he's speaking to Adam. He's not yet created Eve. He says, it's not good for the man to be alone. It's another need Adam has. He needs more than food and water and shelter. He needs someone for companionship. And you know this, how, how this unfolds. God gives him as a companion, gives him Eve, gives him, gives him a spouse, gives him a partner in marriage. But it's important that you hear this as well fundamental truth for every person who's ever lived. It's, it's, it is not good to be alone. But God's solution for every person is not, is not a spouse or a mate. Many times God's solution is, is fantastic friends. I mean, friends that blow the roof off. You look at Paul, his life. I mean, the friendship, the community, the camaraderie he had, the companionship he had. It's not good to be alone if you're finding yourself alone here today. God is your provider as well. He has someone, he has someone's already picked out to help you uh, to, to abandon your aloneness in, in friendship and, and camaraderie. He has people picked out for you. But for Adam, it's a spouse. Adam, it's a spouse. And I'll touch upon later about some implications of him having a spouse. But God is their provider. God is, God is our provider as well. You could probably give me many illustrations from your life. Many of you could. I couldn't help but think of Harvey. Um, Last August, so many of you in this room had significant damage to your home. Many of you were were put out of your home for a long, long time. Some of you still are. One of my friends who I was meeting with a while back, just a few weeks back, finally got in his home. But most of you have a story of provision, don't you? You were out of your house, but there was a friend, or there were family members, or there were financial provisions, or there was, there was a way God provided. As God was the provider for Adam and Eve, he is yours and my provider as well. And then finally, to them, God is their protector. Chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. But the Lord God warned Adam, you may freely eat the fruit of every tree in the garden, except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you eat this fruit, you're sure to die. God was being Adam's protector. God was saying, I need to warn you. God would put a label on every warning he gives mankind, the label of sin. I need to warn you, Adam. Do not eat the fruit of this tree because there'll be a price to pay. It'll be death. You're made to be immortal, eternal, but if you eat from this tree, it will be death. God was his protector, and and God is our protector as well. I've seen in myself, and I've seen in others as well. We are not not good, independent judges about what is good and what is sin. We're not. We're just not. 
I think I'm too messed up and too broken. There's a whole bunch of stuff. I would have thought, hey, that looks really good. And you're the same way. But we need God to tell us, which he has, which he has profoundly. We need God to tell us, hey, look out for that. That's a sin. Don't do that. There'll be a price to pay. There'll be a loss. There'll be a cost. There'll be a diminishing. Don't do that. And God is our protector as well. And when I think about examples for us, I think there's none more poignant or profound or important, important than the message of God that spills out in the story of Adam and Eve that begins to tell the story of God's perspective for sexual expression. It begins by spelling out in their lives down at the end of chapter 2. It, it talks about how this is why a man leaves his father and mother, is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. Now the man and the wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. The man leaves his father and mother, is joined to his wife. Those are Hebrew terms that are tied to covenant. The message there is this isn't just to, hey, they're just two of us, let's hook up. This was covenant marriage. This was marriage. This was marriage. And in that covenant of marriage where he left his father and mother, he joined to her. They were united into one. Then sexual expression was given and honored by God. Sexual expression is only good. It's only honored. It's only without sin. When it's between a husband and wife, a man and wife in marriage. Covenant, that's it. And our culture has bought the lie. And sadly, far too much of us as the church have bought the lie. And and hear me today. God is saying there there is damage done. See, I have this, this beautiful, beautiful gift. But it only holds its beauty in this one setting. It only holds its beauty in this setting of this covenant of marriage between a man and a wife, husband and wife. Man and woman in marriage. That's the only place, but it shatters and it rips you to shreds. He is our protector. He warns us. He tells us that. They were blessed in this, which is why it would go on to say, the man and his wife were both naked, but they felt no shame. Not just physically, but but it's saying they could just simply be who they, be who they really were. And they didn't have to, po- to pose They didn't have to pretend. They didn't have to hide. They could just be exactly who they were. Be loved and loved just exactly as they were. God was their protector. This is who God was to them. He was their purpose giver. He was their provider. He was their protector. And and that's, that's who he is for you as well. That's who he is for me as well. What, what they were to him was his special creation. That's, that's who you are to God. Is this infinite love for you. For you, this infinite love. So how does this play out when you look at the rest of Scripture? How does this, this Adam and Eve theme, this relationship theme, how does it play out when you look at Scripture? A couple of things I want to pull back and, and ask you to look with me at, at all of chapter 1, chapter 2. When you look at it, 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 is, it is perfection. There's no barrier between man and God at all. The suggestion is that Adam and Eve could, could see or virtually see God. They could walk with God. They could hear God. They could talk with him. There are absolutely no barriers between them and God, none at all, none whatsoever. And you see the story of Adam and Eve and their relationship, and there's, there's no brokenness there. 
at all. It's just simply pure love. This is paradise, folks. This is what God made. And this is God's creation. This is what it was intended to be. There's no pain, no sorrow, no suffering, no sin. There's no death. This is paradise. We have to remember this is how it all began. He created a perfect paradise. And then you flip a page in a heartbeat. It shatters. Relationship with God is severed. Wreckage in the relationship, it shatters. And this is how we apply that. We remember what God made was perfect, perfect. No death, no sorrow, no end, no goodbyes, perfect. We read Genesis chapter 3 all the way through Revelation 20, which means from the third chapter of the Bible all the way up to the last two chapters of the Bible. And we understand that the whole story is about the wreckage caused by sin, but the redemption built by God to restore sinners like you and me. That's the whole story. God didn't build any of the wreckage. It wasn't his grand plan. His grand plan was just his one and two perfection forever. Everything we read, it's about what you and I have done, what sin has done. But above that, shouting from the rooftops, this redemption plan of God that culminates in Jesus, who is God the Son, who came to this planet, put skin on, one day went to a cross and died for your sins and mine. On the third day, he rose from the dead and lives today. And there's this, this, this complete redemption offered to anyone who says to Jesus, would you forgive my sins and lead my life? I, I'm bowing before you. I'm, I'm surrendering leadership to you. Would you do that? Then he gives you full redemption. That's the story that unfolds. Genesis 3, all the way through Revelation 20, until you get to the last two chapters, Revelation 21, 22. And it, it gives us this picture of where God has said, he has said that the earth and the heavens as they are now will one day be destroyed and they'll be remade new again. Gives us this picture of newness. It's, it's Eden all over again. It's paradise all over again, except it's so much better because of this. It's because of Jesus' redemption. Because when you follow Jesus, you're telling him, you're saying, I want to surrender leadership to you. You're saying, mold me, make me, shape me, however you want to do so. And what he wants to do is to make you just like him. And scripture says, if you're following him, the day you see him face to face, that will be completed. You'll be just like him, which means you can go through all of eternity and you can still know good from wrong and you can still have moral choice, but you will always choose with free will as Jesus does. And everyone else in heaven will as well in this new heaven, new earth. It's paradise all over again. That's the context You read the first two chapters and you realize God created perfection and you keep that in mind as you read all the wreckage and recognize the wreckage that goes up until the last two chapters. And then there's also this context of of understanding as you read who you are to God. Do you get it? You're his prized creation. He would abandon all the galaxies for you. And just for you. He would abandon them all. Like his son abandoned heaven for you. Do you know you're his special creation? Do you know that, that he is, he intends to be, he's waiting perhaps for you, he intends to be your purpose giver? Like to give you your purpose on this planet? Do you realize that he is your provider? 
you realize that he is your protector. And as you read through scripture, if you remember that, it will shape and mold what you see and hear and absorb and do. So my challenge, take scripture this, this week, anywhere in the Bible you want to read. Many of you are, are reading, just continue on where you are and put this lens over it. First two chapters, perfection. Now you're reading about the wreckage, but the redemption story. Put this lens on it, remembering who you are to him and who he is to you and then read in that context. If you're not reading scripture right now, then pick any book of the New Testament. Just begin to read. And see it through this lens, this Adam and Eve lens, this relationship lens, and see how it illuminates everything that you read. Well, I want to pray for us, but I want to, uh, before I do, I want to say this. I know there are a number of you here. You've never embraced God's redemption in Jesus. He already bled for you, died for you, simply waiting for you to bow your knee before him. And say, would you forgive me? Would you lead me? Say, I'm surrendering leadership to you. And, and that is where redemption begins. That's where redemption begins. That concludes with you being part of those last two chapters of the new heavens and new earth. You can do it now. Father in heaven, thank you for this framework that tells us your perfection. What you've built is perfection. Thank you for this framework that tells us who we are to you. May each of us here, may your spirit like stir our heart now of the value you place upon each one of us. May we remember and understand poignantly who you are to us. May we this week pick up scripture and begin to read and let these truths of Adam and Eve, these truths of relationship affect what we hear and absorb and how we respond. And then, Father, I pray especially for those who had not yet trusted Jesus. I pray that they, that they have, even in this prayer, that they will now. They won't wait another day. They don't know if they have another day. But they would be convinced just enough of your love and of your plan of redemption that they would accept that plan bow to Jesus and say, you're my Lord and Savior. I pray that with high hopes in Jesus' name. Amen.